Hello and welcome to From Russia with News, a weekly news podcast brought to you by the Moscow Times. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Millions of citizens of Russia are united by the Olympic dream. I view the Russians as a far greater challenge that we have. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. A unique country, not bad, not bad at all. I'm your host, Jake Cordell, a reporter in our Moscow newsroom. This week on the programme, China has complained that Moscow's response to the coronavirus is discriminatory and risks damaging relations with Beijing. The authorities have gone to significant, quite strict lengths to monitor people returning from China. Associated Press correspondent Francesca Ebel will join us for an update on Russia's increasingly heavy-handed measures to contain the outbreak. And later, the battle for the Arctic is heating up as countries, companies and citizens wrangle to protect and advance their interests in the region. Putin always, if you notice, he'll always cast doubt on whether it's man-made climate change. He'll often say things like, oh, well, there have been periods of warming and cooling in Earth's uh, geological history, in Earth's climatic history. There, We don't know that this is human-caused for sure. We'll speak to American journalist Alec Loon about the effects of climate change on the Arctic and Russia's political and economic strategy for its icy north. The Chinese embassy in Moscow this week criticised Russia's handling of the coronavirus outbreak, saying the response was discriminatory and was causing alarm among Chinese citizens who are in Russia. It also warned the policies were not going down well in Beijing. Last week on the show, we heard from Carnegie Moscow Center's Alexander Gabuev about creeping anti-Chinese sentiment after Russia blocked the majority of Chinese citizens from entering Russia. Since then, the response to the outbreak has grown even tougher. Joining us in the studio today to explain what prompted the rebuke from Beijing and to look at how those anti-Chinese sentiments are playing out, Francesca Ebel, Moscow correspondent for the Associated Press. Hi, Francesca. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. So what's happened in the last week that has prompted this reaction from the Chinese embassy? So from the 20th of February, um, Chinese nationals were banned from entering Russia. And they specifically said uh, citizens of other countries from China are not banned. So it's specifically focused on Chinese nationals, right? And then following this, Sergei Sabyanin, the mayor of Moscow, ordered police raids on hotels and businesses. And they also authorized the use of facial recognition technology to track those who have evaded potentially the 14-day self-quarantine that they have been asked to to keep um, since they've returned from China. There's also orders on the Moscow metro and on trams and buses to monitor for quote-unquote Chinese nationals, right? I think this has elicited this response from the Chinese embassy. I think it's quite flagrantly discrimination against the Asian community and Chinese nationals specifically. Can you tell us a little bit more about what exactly is going on on the Moscow transport network with these orders to inspect and keep an eye on passengers? Right, so there there are two things. Um, Well, firstly, Sabianin ordered specifically for there to be uh, more monitoring in both the metro and the tram network and, and the bus system. But there was, interestingly, this scandal around a leaked email that... I should note, Moscow Trans has said it is fake, um, and and they've sort of re- rejected the, this leak as being fake. But they have also confirmed that they've taken measures to to monitor for you know in order to pre- prevent any any spread of of this virus. And we talked to Yuri Dashkov, who's the Public Transport Workers Union chairman, and he showed us screenshots um, of what is very likely to be a uh, a WhatsApp chat between 
various bus drivers. And what had happened is around the 19th of February, uh, he starts getting photos on, on the WhatsApp chat from some of the drivers. You know, th- this wasn't just one or two photos. This was about five, six, seven photos. And it, what it showed was a screen that said, it was a message from the, the dispatcher that said, if any Chinese nationals are discovered in the carriage, inform the dispatcher. And every single message was the same, right? Then he showed us the ensuing conversation on the chat. And, you know, firstly, it, they all found it, they were all just very confused, a bit like befuddled what, what we're supposed to do. Would we supposed to keep our eyes on the road? It's not our job to sort of essentially racially profile any Asian people or Chinese people in our carriage. And then they were genuinely outraged. And that was quite interesting because you don't have to be in Moscow for a very long time to notice that in the metro and in Moscow's transport system, uh, people from the Asian communities, specifically the Central Asian communities, are disproportionately targeted and, and asked for their documents and that, and that kind of thing. So to sort of hear this outrage from these bus drivers was quite interesting. And, and how um, does Moscow's measures stack up against what other countries are doing to try and contain the spread? Well, what's interesting is that Russia has only had two uh, reported cases so far of the virus. Um, And those two cases were in Siberia. They were Chinese nationals and they've since recovered. And yet the authorities have gone to significant, quite strict lengths to monitor people returning from China. In comparison with Italy, who we've seen, they now have 400 cases as of today. uh, And they have said they're not going to close their borders. They've uh, quarantined 11 towns. And in Iran, who have had 139 cases, they've said they have no plans to quarantine. So each country that have had cases um, are reacting to it in in their sort of different ways, right? But what is interesting about the Russian reaction is that it's totally disproportionate to the number of cases that they've since been reported. Um, and and how much of this is official policy coming from the top and how much of this is individuals or groups taking it upon their own to try and stop the spread? I think it's mostly uh, orders from the top. We we reported this story and, and we, we focused on sev- several different cases, right? So you have the official orders to the transport in Moscow, which is obviously orders from the top and it's just workers and, and the Moscow metro and the Moscow bus system reacting to those orders. Uh, but then you have this kind of wild case in Yekaterinburg where uh, these Cossacks sort of took it upon themselves to start patrolling for any Chinese nationals or, as they they said to us, not just Chinese nationals, but um, people from the Asian communities there. Can you tell us more about the who the Cossacks are and why they're getting involved in this issue? So we filmed the Cossacks last week sort of taking it upon themselves to carry out patrols on the, on the streets of Yekaterinburg. And we filmed them going into Chinese shops, Chinese restaurants and uh, handing out masks and sort of advising uh, Chinese people on, on what to do to, to prevent themselves from getting the virus. Uh, the Cossacks are a conservative, often pro-Kremlin group. They're, they're very traditional. And that I should note that they are not representative of Russia as a whole. This is a very like specific group of people. But they were quite... Uh, we, we talked with the elder of, of one of the Cossack corps, Igor Kurbanov, and he told us that he believes that people from the Asian community are more likely to get infected, right? He said, we mainly approach people from China because that is where the coronavirus came from. They are the main source. But there are also people of Asian appearance that seem to be more vulnerable to this disease. Europeans are not yet affected much. So this kind of clearly shows us that, that they are there's a sharp focus on the Asian community. This is, I would say 
shows that there's been a bit of a rise in anti-Asian, anti-Chinese sentiment. And what have human rights groups said about how Russia is responding? So we talked with, for this story, we talked with uh, Aliana Popova. She's a human rights activist who is actually currently suing the city authorities. Um, she's been in a year-long court challenge against the use of facial recognition and surveillance in, in Moscow. And she said, I mean, firstly, that this is clearly racial profiling, the measures that Moscow has taken is is clearly targeting Chinese nationals and, and people from the Asian community. And she said that actually, instead of using these pretty discriminative measures against people, that Moscow and, and Russia should actually uh, sort of start a proper information campaign. It, it shouldn't just be about surveillance and, and limiting people's rights and people's movement. It should be about uh, education and making sure the medical side of things are robust enough to deal with this kind of crisis. And it, instead, you've kind of had these very sort of quite radical measures that threatens people's civil liberties, people's privacy. And yeah, she just emphasised that we all have the constitutional right to privacy and that citizens of Russia and of other countries have this according to foreign and international legal norms. So she, you know, from her point of view, and not just her point of view, but other human rights uh, advocates have said, this crosses a line. As you said, at the moment, there are no active cases of coronavirus actually in Russia. So would the authorities say that this response is actually working and it's justified? So Sergei Sabyanin wrote on his website last week that these are uh, specifically preventative measures, that there hasn't been a single case in Moscow yet, and that all of these measures are, quote, unpleasant but necessary in order to stop a potential spread. So their position is strictly, we're kind of bringing in all these measures before there's any kind of crisis. Similarly, when we talked to the representatives from the Metro, they said, you know, this is, we've never had this in our history, this is unprecedented, and we've been asked to do this for the welfare of our citizens, of the people using th th this Metro system so that that's how they're justifying it they're saying that it's you know unpleasant but necessary essentially it's a really interesting and a story that we'll have to keep an eye on thank you very much for joining us today francesca thanks for having me the arctic is warming up faster than any other region on the planet and analysts say the receding ice caps have triggered a geopolitical scramble in the region with trillions of dollars worth of natural resources at stake two million russians living inside the arctic circle and a territory spanning more than 7,000 kilometres from east to west, Russia has a lot to play for. On the line to discuss Russia's strategy for the Arctic and how the world's largest country is responding to the effects of climate change on the region, journalist Alec Loon. Hi Alec, thanks for being on the show today. Yeah, my pleasure. How is climate change in the Arctic affecting Russia and how is the government responding? Well, I think the, there's been a sea change, really, in how the Russian government is looking at climate change. Um, it's joined the Paris Accord. It has started talking about climate change. Um, it's basically, basically climate change now exists officially in Russia, and, and that's important. But there's a lot of caveats here that are pretty important and kind of still leave doubt that um, the Russian government really gets the kind of how dire these, these the straits they, they're in with climate change really are. Um, so Putin, I remember last year, said that uh, the Arctic is warming four times faster than the rest of the planet. That was actually more than the, the Finnish uh, prime minister he was sitting with was, was saying. So he actually had a, a kind of a 
worse almost take on how, how the Arctic was warming compared to the rest of the planet. And um, so, th so he recognizes that climate change is existing. The thing is, the big caveat is that um, Putin always, if you notice, he'll always cast doubt on whether it's man-made climate change. He'll often say things like, oh, well, there have been periods of warming and cooling in Earth's uh, geological history, in Earth's climatic history. There, We don't know that this is human-caused for sure. And uh, that's quite a convenient position for Russia to take as a major fossil fuel producer. And um, so I think that's uh, that's kind of the the lens that you have to look at uh, Russia's climate change plans. And yeah, I mean, obviously climate change is huge. It's, it's happening everywhere, but uh, the Arctic is warming far faster than, than the rest of the Earth. And um, there are going to be big impacts. I mean, these things can be managed, but at the very least, it's going to cost Russia a lot of money. Um, there was a report last year, the, the Russian uh, deputy minister in charge of uh, the development of the Arctic said that permafrost thaw is already costing the Russian economy $2.3 billion a year. There could be something like 40 times more in terms of costs by 2050, if we believe the forecast of scientists on this. And um, yeah, I mean, and the, I think the last thing to look at is um, the national plan for adaptation to climate change. And also, I think we should note, too, that um, with joining the Paris Accord, Russia actually is allowed to emit more under the, the targets that it set for itself under the Paris Accord because of a kind of accounting glitch, which is that the Paris Accord sets the benchmarks for carbon emission reduction from 1990. And of course, 1990 was a year when the Soviet command economy was still pumping out all sorts of unnecessary goods from its factories and carbon emissions were very high. And of course, that all naturally, that, all, that was all drastically reduced in the 1990s. So Russia can actually increase its emissions a little bit and still meet the, the carbon reduction cuts it set for itself under the Paris uh, Climate Treaty. And, you know, I, I think that ultimately it's joining the Paris Accord is motivated mainly by geopolitics. I think, yes, it's true, Russia's worried that its businesses won't be as competitive if it doesn't kind of get on board with these increasingly strict environmental standards. But I think ultimately it's worried that it's going to be shut out of this club if it's not part of the Paris Climate Accord and that the Paris Climate Accord, these stricter standards could be used by the West as another tool to pressure Russia. And at the same time, the, the government's own climate change policy highlights a number of positive opportunities from climate change. Yeah, it was a very strange brew in this when this national plan came out in January. Um, on the one hand, all sorts of dire predictions, warning of increased droughts, heavy rainfall, flooding, wildfires, permafrost thaw, infectious diseases, so on and so forth. But but on the other hand, taking kind of a very breezy perspective on the, the opportunities, reduced energy use, better shipping in the Arctic, more land for agriculture and animal husbandry, increasing productivity of forest growth, and so on and so forth. And so, yeah, it was a, it was a very strange mix. And I think that the main mistake being made in this national adaptation plan, this national climate policy, is that it doesn't quite get that the benefits in the North will probably be outweighed by the consequences in the South. So in other words, you know, you maybe you'll be able to grow more wheat in northern Yakutia or Krasnoyarsk, but it's not going to replace the output you're losing from the droughts and, and, and fires in the breadbasket down in 
in Krasnodar. So I, th- I think it's mistaken about the, the kind of the net gain. And, you know, and, and some of the measures in that plan are just funny, really. Uh, you know, there, there was talk about developing drought-resistant plants to help adapt to climate change. I mean, sure that exists, but I think it's just funny to think that, uh, you know, Russia's going to replant all the plants in the north with s- some new kind of silver bullet of a, of, of a species. You know, and, and finally, real big kind of glaring problem, I think, with this national plan is that you'll notice that it orders all the Russian regions to create adaptation plans, including the Arctic regions, these northern regions, they should be creating their own adaptation plans, coming up with specific measures. You know, the, the national plan is a bit broad, and then the regions are supposed to come up with specific responses. But it doesn't say much about how that's going to be funded. And I think that anybody who's worked in Russia knows that this is you know, constantly a huge problem. The, you know, Moscow makes these huge demands in whatever area it might be, you know, the presidential, the, the May decrees by the president or whatever, you know, sets these huge goals, kind of reminiscent of a Soviet five-year plan or something. But then the regions don't have any money to actually implement them because, um, you know, the, the vast amount of money kind of flows to Moscow. So that's a huge omission. And I, it's not clear how those adaptation plans, even if they are successfully developed and targeted, will actually be implemented. And one of the the big gains that Russia could make is the opening up of the Northern Sea Route, the ability to ship goods across the Arctic in, in more months of the year. Can you talk a little bit about how that is playing out in Russia's climate change strategy? Yeah, so I mean, Russia believes that the decreasing ice cover in the Arctic will allow the Northern Sea Route to be more ice-free, to be passable for more months of the year. Um, They're hoping that it's going to become a rival to the Suez Canal route um, because it is up to 40% shorter than shipping to the Suez Canal. But uh, again, there's, you know, there's some things here. There's some wishful thinking on the part of the Russian government, mainly the fact that, you know, sure, the Arctic is warming, but that doesn't make it suddenly an easy place to bring container ships through. There's still, you know, there may be less ice, but there's still a lot of ice floating around. Smaller icebergs can be actually even even harder to kind of uh, track and predict. And you still need, I mean, there's still increased costs associated. So it may be shorter, but for now, it still costs more than shipping through the Suez Canal. And that's mainly because you you still need an icebreaker um, escort. Uh, the Arctic is not yet ice-free, even in the summertime. And you need ice-class hulls on the transport ships. And you also need better insurance. I mean, insurance companies insuring these voyages are going to take note of the fact that you're not going through the tried-and-true Suez Canal route. You're taking this this new route through kind of more untested, um, unknown conditions. So, you know, there's five major container shipping companies in the world. Of them, three have said that they're not going to ship through on the Northern Sea Route, mainly because of environmental concerns. One of them has, Maersk, has tested the route with a container ship and said that actually it doesn't think that this is cost effective yet. And the fifth major shipping company is is Costco in China and they're shipping um, through the Northern Sea Route. But that also reflects China's kind of geopolitical ambitions. China wants to be part of this Arctic uh, race for Arctic resources that's going on. It's calling itself a near Arctic nation and it kind of wants to take any opportunity to be present in the Arctic. And so that's why it's interested in the Northern Sea Route as opposed to, you know, the, any sort of huge economic benefit, I think. So yeah, there, there's a lot of questions, even 
with the warming Arctic, there's a huge number of questions about the economic viability of the Northern Sea Route. Nonetheless, Putin has said we're going to have million, 80 million tons of shipping on the Northern Sea Route by 2024. There's no way Russia is going to get there. And how do local communities and environmental groups uh, view these issues? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I was actually just in Yamal with some reindeer herders talking about kind of their concerns with this rapid development that's going on, mainly gas in Yamal. And, you know, people are seeing the climate change drastically. It was about negative 10 degrees Celsius when I was up in Yamal. I mean, everybody I met there told me, oh yeah, it should be negative 30 at this time of year. So, you know, everybody's seeing these changes. They're noticing that it's raining more often in the fall and the spring. That's a huge concern for reindeer herders because that can, when you have the temperature hovering around zero degrees in the fall and spring and rain falling on snow, um, that can create an ice crust um, over the lichen that the reindeer um, kind of dig through the snow to eat. And it causes mass die-offs. I mean, every other year now in Yamal, there's a mass a mass die-off of reindeer affecting these people who are still living a traditional uh, lifestyle and still very much dependent on that livelihood. So, you know, they're, they're very worried and conscious about these environmental changes. But I think they're more, so it's more about these direct, immediate impacts of oil and gas development that they're worried about on a day-to-day level, even as they still see these larger climate change effects. And if we return to this issue of geopolitics, we've been hearing about this scramble for the Arctic for some years already. How is that playing out from the Russian perspective and what are the key touch points we should be looking at? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I think it's clear that Russia sees the Arctic as its kind of economic future. I mean, right now, uh, the Arctic's only about Arctic industry is only about 10% of the Russian GDP, but the Arctic is still important in Moscow's view because of the potential for future growth. So, I mean, in the Arctic, there's something like 22% of the world's oil and gas reserves. Four-fifths of that is located in the Russian Arctic. And so Russia sees the Arctic as the future of its oil and gas industry. And that future is already arriving, at least in terms of gas. The Russian government's doing everything possible to make sure that future gets here uh, faster, sooner rather than later. And and I think we saw that this month with the government approving these huge tax cuts um, for extractive industries in the Arctic. You know, it's kind of interesting at the same time that in the West, there's increasing calls to stop subsidizing fossil fuel industry. In Russia, they've just adopted this um, package of amendments, which would give a 5% tax on oil, um, a 1% tax on gas, and a 0% tax on LNG, uh, liquid natural gas, uh, for the first 12 years in case of LNG for companies willing to invest in the Arctic. I mean, that you know, that's incredible. So seeing huge development in, in Russia in, of the Arctic, and that's really being pushed by state policy. It's not being pushed by uh, the economics of it. As far as what to look at, I mean, everybody makes a big a big deal about the kind of the military competition, growing tensions in the Arctic. And I mean, that definitely, that definitely is happening. The United States has said it's going to send a Navy ship through the Arctic for the first time in 30 years, a surface ship through the, the Arctic this summer. So, you know, there's definitely some tensions going on. Russia has opened a lot of new military basis. But, you know, I, I don't think that's, I don't think we're about to see a, a major war in the Arctic. I mean, all these Arctic countries are developed countries with advanced militaries, you know, nuclear powers. I, I think that, you know, we're not going to see a, a hot conflict in the Arctic and the military tension that we're seeing, the military buildup, it still pales in comparison to what was in the Arctic during the Cold War. A really interesting topic and one we'll be keeping an eye on. Thanks for joining us today, Alec. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's it for this week on From Russia With News. Thanks for tuning in, and if you get a chance, please do rate the show on your favourite podcast app. 
it'll help other Russia watchers find us. We'd love to hear what you think of the show, so don't hesitate to get in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter, at The Moscow Times, to tell us what you think and let us know if there are topics you'd like us to explore on future episodes. You can find the latest news from Russia, including more on coronavirus, the battle for the Arctic, and the latest politics, business, art, and culture over at the Moscow Times website. While you're there, you'll also see our big yellow crowdfunding campaign. And if you like this podcast and our other free independent reporting from Russia, please consider throwing a little bit of your hard-earned pocket money our way. I'm your host, Jake Cordell. Our producer was Pyotr Sauer. We look forward to joining you next week with more news from Russia. 